Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. Our guest tonight is Jean Libby, historian, and um, a John Brown historian, specializing in John Brown. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, Benjamin Quarles. Uh, good evening, Ms. Libby. Good evening, Preston. I'm so glad to, uh, to talk with you, and uh, please call me Jean, even though I'm an elder. Okay, Jean. Thanks. Appreciate that. Um, why don't you start out by telling us how uh, Benjamin Quarles influenced your research and your work? Well, we need to go back to uh, 1977, and uh, that's when I was beginning to research about John Brown. And, of course, I'll have to go back a little bit before that because uh, a lot of times people ask me, they say, you know, why do you study John Brown? And it comes from uh, my work in the Civil Rights Movement. And when uh, that was changing in the 1970s, I began to cast about, you know, what am I going to do now? What is going to uh, fulfill uh, my ideas of, and uh, energy and need uh, to make a change? And I came upon uh, the biography of John Brown that was written by Stephen Oates in 1974, and I interviewed him by telephone. And uh, I told him that I had read about Osborne Anderson, who was the only survivor of the battle in Harper's Ferry. And he escaped successfully. He was the only one who was in the battle, fought, and escaped, and uh, was not captured or killed uh, and executed. And so I had gotten this on interlibrary loan. And when I talked to uh, Professor Oates about it and said that I had read this, and why is it so different from everything I've read in the textbooks? And why does it uh, say, why does Osborne Anderson say that the slaves fought with John Brown and supported him, the local people? And he suggested that I read uh, Professor Quarles' work, which was published in uh, 1974 by Oxford University Press. And that's called Allies for Freedom, Blacks and John Brown. And so I did, and uh, began a correspondence and telephone interview. I, I never did personally meet Professor Quarles, but I did uh, speak with him on the phone several times. And he encouraged me uh, very much to look into the oral history uh, in the community around Harper's Ferry, in the black community, uh, if there are any stories about the John Brown raid, and especially if there's any documentation. So that's, you know, that's all fine and good, but I'm white. And so uh, how am I going to do this? Uh, I wrote a letter to the Chamber of Commerce in Charlestown, and I asked if there were a list of uh, black churches 
and uh, black organizations like that. I particularly wanted to get hold of the NAACP because I was active in the NAACP here in uh, Palo Alto, California, and I'd done the newsletter and, and things like that. So I knew that if I could connect through the NAACP that I'd be able to, you know, to make that uh, connection and continue. So the Chamber of Commerce gave the letter to the custodian of the building because it's the same place that the uh, that the John Brown Museum is where they've got the wagon that he was taken to be hanged and all these various artifacts right there in the library there in, in Charlestown. And as it happened, his son-in-law was a minister. And so he gave the letter to his son-in-law, who wrote to me with a list of the churches, and more than that, with an invitation uh, to come and meet them. And when I did, uh, uh, his wife, Mrs. Mary Newman, carried me around to the churches and uh, introduced me to the congregations and to the ministers. And uh, without this kind of connection, I, I never would have been able to interview people and to get the support of the of the African American community uh, near Harpers Ferry. Mm-hmm. Now, this Osborne Henderson uh, was a black man that survived. That's correct. Uh, and it was the only survivor of the um, John Brown raid. Of the battle, yes. Of the the only person who was in the battle, and. Uh, and successfully escaped. There were four others who escaped, but they were always on the other side in Maryland. They were not in the battle. He actually escaped with another man, uh, one of the white members, but he they decided that it was too dangerous for them to travel together after they reached Pennsylvania, and so they separated. And Albert Hazlitt was caught, brought back, and... Uh, was eventually hanged. John Brown and all the others tried to pretend that they didn't know him. You know, he wasn't he wasn't part of the group, but that didn't work. Uh he was he was executed too. But Osborne Anderson traveled on the Underground Railroad. Uh he went to William Stills. He went to other places along went went to Cleveland just as if he were a fugitive. And he was able to make it through to uh, to Cleveland and then to Canada. And then he wrote this account. That is, Osborne Henderson wrote an account? Osborne Anderson, yes. And, and so Osborne that Anderson. that was written in 1861. It was written about a year after the raid, or published a year after the raid. What's and the title of that publication? It's called A Voice from Harper's Ferry. A voice from Harper's Ferry. Yes. So so my first book is called Black Voices from Harper's Ferry, and what I did was to first publish, transcribe, and then publish A Voice from Harper's Ferry. And and that's what I've done since. Uh, I found uh another I found a another account of the John Brown raid by a local African American man who was a minister and I found that through Benjamin Quarles book. Now you and what was, to, yes. excuse me, what was your book? You said you wrote a book? I've written six, so I'm only gonna talk about three on this program because we haven't we haven't got oh, much well, time. The book you just mentioned what was the title of that book, and is that uh, book available? Do you have a website? I do. Uh, the book is out of print. It's called Black Voices from Harper's Ferry, and it was published uh, in 1979. There were 500 copies printed through uh, you know, very inexpensive printing, and I've gotten many requests for it very recently, and so I'm probably going to publish it as an ebook uh very very soon. I'm getting so many requests for it. Okay, and give us the name of the three books that you mentioned. 
All right. The three, I'd like to talk about Black Voices from Harper's Ferry, and that was directly influenced by Professor Quarles. And then the one that's most influenced by him is called From Oh From Slavery to Salvation. That's the first title. And then the second title is the autobiography of Reverend Thomas W. Henry of the AME Church. That Reverend Thomas W. Henry. W. Henry. Of the AME Church. Okay. And your website. My website is alliesforfreedom.org. www.alliesforfreedom.org. I'm starting a new website, but you can get this book, not not Black Voices, but you can get Slavery to Salvation on Amazon because I've kept that one in print. Okay. And so just by going to title From Slavery to Salvation, that can be picked up on Amazon either in the very uh in the one that was printed by University Press, you can get that for a couple hundred dollars by these cutthroat uh resellers. Uh or you can get a a reprint version from me uh for eighteen dollars. You can get either one on Amazon. Either one on Amazon. Right. From the title, From Slavery to Salvation, the Autobiography of Reverend Thomas Henry of the AME Church. So, if I may, let me explain how that worked with Professor Quarles. Uh, what What occurred in his book, Allies for Freedom, Blacks and John Brown, which was published in in 1974, was that he documented uh, all the everything he could find about African Americans and the John Brown raid, and he found this minister, Reverend Thomas W. Henry, uh, and he put a, a a paragraph in there that he'd been suspected of being a conspirator with Brown because a letter was found in John Brown's pocket saying that he was a trustworthy man. So when I started following through on this, um, I was doing it in a methodical way, and this is after Black Voices had been published, and I asked Professor Quarles for advice um, about you know, about finding information about African Americans. And he said, whatever you want to do, uh, you will be able to do so. He said it's very trendy at this time, and I'm talking to him now in about 1977, 1978 on the telephone. And he says it's really trendy for professors to get a grant and and then go somewhere and do the research and come back and wring their hands and say, there is nothing there. Everything has been done. And he says, this is not true with African-American studies, and it's also not true if you want to find something. And he was, uh, uh, he thought it was my research skills were good, and was very complimentary that I found additional information about Reverend Thomas Henry. I found his autobiography. And um, it was a lost document, but I look at it. I found it at Howard University in the library because I went there figuring that's where, you know, I can find African-American sources. And the way I look at it is that uh, he wasn't lost, but we were. And so when I found it, um, I had an article published in uh, what was called then Negro History Bulletin and thought, you know, maybe, you know, somebody will pick up on this and they'll write a book about Reverend Henry. Uh, But nobody did. And I thought, well, gee, maybe... Maybe it's meant for me to do this because I found it. So how am I going to do that being white? And at that time, um, I had not been back to school. 
I had married young, had my children, been a traditional uh, homemaker at the same time as doing the, a lot of activity with the uh, Congress of Racial Equality and uh, and then NAACP. But that was all the kind of thing, volunteer work. And so I decided, well, I need to go uh, to school and get some credentials, university credentials, and what am I going to study? And I had always thought, uh, by this time, my older children were attending the University of California at Berkeley. And that was where my husband went, too. And I had always thought, well, if I go back to school, once these kids are grown and all that, I'll be an archaeologist. That was always my dream. But then, because I had found Reverend Henry's autobiography, and I realized that I could not interpret it in a traditional historical manner. I couldn't go and be a history major and publish the book and publish the research because it doesn't work that way. In order to uh, in order to document and research African American history, it has to be done from an African American perspective. So I studied, uh, when I studied at Berkeley, which was uh, 1983 to 1986, um, I I studied African American studies. And then people would, you know, often ask me, you know, well, why are you doing that? And it's it's kind of hard to explain, but it was because of Reverend Thomas W. Henry and what I I owed him he needed to be presented as much as possible in his own perspective as well as his own words. And like Professor Quarles, who is very much mentoring me in this and encouraging me, it must be done with standard historical methods of documentation and evidence. Okay, and in your uh, studies and on becoming a researcher and historian, what little-known facts on John Brown can you share with us that might not be generally known to the public? There were slaves that fought willingly with John Brown. And I've actually, in the time period, I mean, this is a long time that's going on now, I'm almost 73 years old, and I was, uh, I was what, 33 then, 34. So in that 40 years, I have been able to influence the histories, especially in the National Park Service. You know, they do a lot of interpretation there. So instead of saying no slaves came and helped John Brown, they now admit that there were at least two who died, and they died willingly supporting him. Are there any monuments to those uh, African-Americans that supported John Brown? No. Have you been part of a movement to get that established by any chance? No. What about I, still, any I still got books in me, Preston. I still got more books in me. I can't do monuments. Okay. I I have been involved in one monument, and that's uh, here in California where I live. Um, Mary Brown, the widow of John Brown, is uh, is buried here in Santa Clara County, and so are many of her her descendants. And that's been established as a as a uh, a site on the Underground Railroad Network for Freedom. And, oh, hey, there's a monument that's coming up, um, and but it's California-oriented. There was, there was um, a couple of African-Americans in California, in fact, more than a couple, who supported John Brown, but who, who supported him directly before the raid. One of them was Mary Ellen Pleasant. You've probably heard of her. Okay. And the work of Sue Bibbs. 
I've I've helped Sushil a lot, and she's helped me, and so we've shown we've documented that. But there's another man, and his name was Peter Williams Cassie, and he is the first uh, deacon to be ordained in the Episcopal Church, and this happened in San Jose in 1863, and so. When I've learned about this and studied him, and I can see with the people he's associated, they are directly involved with John Brown. It's Stephen Smith, it's William Whipper. Uh, I mean, it's just no doubt. And But, of course, I have to write it all down and document about how the, it can be undoubted that he knows about the John Brown raid and certainly was in support. He has got a mission station for uh, refugees, uh, mostly enslaved people who are refugees from the Civil War. It's right in San Jose, California. And he and his wife, through the Episcopal Church, now this is a white church. It still is. And uh, it's still there. It's the oldest church in this part of California. And they want to have a plaque about the school that they established in 1863 in San Jose. And the San Jose History Department is interested, too, and there's some uh, African-American professors there who are involved. So, yes, we're getting a monument going, but it's to uh, people in California. Sorry. Well, that's okay. Um, getting back to Mr. Osborne Henderson and his book, uh, A Voice from Harper's Ferry, he noted in that book that he thought that the white slaveholders were cowards. Would you agree with that statement made by Mr. Henderson? Yes, yes, of course. I mean, not cowards, but, uh, I mean, you have to realize it's from his point of view. They are not resisting their capture. He's one of the people who's capturing them, taking them hostage, bringing them in to John Brown in Harper's Ferry. And so they're not fighting back. And they're not uh uh they're not doing what John Brown would do. You know, I mean they're not resisting at all. And uh one of them uh is described by by Anderson as blubbering. And I can believe that. Of course now the whites are going to say that he was very brave uh, and that he was very noble. And so that's one of the things that um, that I learned in, in uh, researching Black Voices from Harper's Ferry is how do you interpret uh, a, a source? How do you interpret someone who has written about the event, who was there, and you have to realize it's from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And so I take the position that nobody lies. They are presenting their own viewpoint. And so uh, Osborne Anderson is not going to see the slaveholders in any kind of positive light. Yeah, I think he was specifically remarking that uh, the slaveholder push the poor whites to fight while they, the slaveholders, hid out and not engage themselves in the fight or either sent their slaves to fight in their place. And um, that was probably... That's not quite the way it happened. Okay. On your view, how did it happen? Well, what occurred was that... um, the party that was sent by Brown, which were uh, blacks and whites, went to the slaveholders. Uh, they were selected. There were uh, about three, uh, two of them were selected, and they were brought to the engine house at Harper's Ferry. Now, when they were captured, um it was not presented that they would that if they gave up their slaves to fight 
that they would not be harmed, but that was John Brown's idea. There are a lot of people who think, and in fact most people think, that what John Brown's idea was is to have a killing of the slaveholders. That's not his idea at all. His idea was, as you described, although that's not what happened in the raid, was that the groups would go to the the farms of the slaveholders, and if they gave up their slaves willingly, they would not be harmed. But it wasn't the idea that they would be uh, having their slaves fighting for them. Oh, I see. Yeah. You, you, you see the difference there? Yes, I'm clear now. Good. Uh, do you Thanks. have any closing remarks uh, before uh, we're going to listen to a clip of uh, Mr. Quarles' book that you will introduce? Do you have any uh, final thoughts before you introduce the clip? Yes. Um, I, I'm particularly interested in this because in in conversation and in letter with Professor Quarles, um, we both have the opinion, which he published in Black Abolitionists, is that John Brown was not a good strategist. This whole thing about that he planned uh, could not work. Frederick Douglass saw it and did not participate for that reason. And so the historians who are considered pro-Brown, you have to believe from their point of view, everything that Brown does is right. Whereas in Professor Quarles' view, which I agree with completely, uh, John Brown's strategy is not what he's about. What he's about is his um, ideas that and his willingness to die and his idea that the African-American is equal to him. What Professor Quarles says in Black Abolitionists that you're about to, uh, that you're about to play, I think really says it best. And so let me find that little bookmark here. Uh, the way he introduces John Brown is completely different from the white historians and definitely the way that I agree. All right. Um, uh, and so, of the abolitionist figures thrust up by the undercurrents of violence, one stands out in a class by himself, and that's uh, uh, John Brown of Osawatomie. Okay, no, maybe it's in Allies for Freedom. Aha. Okay, let me get that bookmark where he describes him. What he says is he says that uh, while John Brown does not have a good strategic sense, is that he considers African Americans his peers. And he's the only white man who does this. And this is why uh, why he is an African-American hero, as much as the fact that he is dying uh, for the end of slavery, he's doing it on an equal basis. He wanted to arm the slaves, and he is considering that they want to have self-determining good towns and that this can be done, and it can be done on an equal basis. And what Professor Quarles says, and I also am in agreement with this, and so is Carl Westmoreland, who is, uh, I guess, recently retired from the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. He's also, this is also his position, is that what John Brown does is truly considers African Americans equal to himself in a way that no other white person does. So I guess that's a good way to uh, 
to uh, introduce the clip from Professor Quarles. Okay, and I think we'll The new that. climate of impending physical confrontation inevitably produced its own energizers. Of the abolitionist figures thrust up by the undercurrents of violence, one stands in a class by himself, John Brown of Osawatomie. To Brown, slavery itself was a species of warfare, demanding a counter-resort to arms. Brown's daring sweep into Virginia in October 1859, his capture and his execution, constituted a national shock from which there would be no recovery. Abolitionists, hitherto of a pacifist orientation, found reason to reverse themselves as the whole atmosphere became charged. Brown's relationships with Negroes had been close, continuous, and on a peer basis, a pattern which no other white reformer could boast. Apparently no Negro who ever knew Brown ever said anything in criticism of his attitude or behavior toward colored people. Brown's attitude toward slavery and his grim and forceful response to it were shaped by many things, of which his own personal experiences with Negroes was not the least. The reciprocal relations between John Brown and the blacks began long before five of them accompanied him to Harper's Ferry and four of them to his doom. Brown's interest in colored people dated back to 1834, when he proposed to get at least one Negro boy or youth and bring him up as we do our own. Fifteen years later, Brown moved his family to North Elba, New York, expressly to settle among Negroes, most of them recipients of land grants from Garrett Smith. Brown attempted to assist his Negro neighbors in business matters, and he invited them to his weekly sessions in the study of the Bible. Richard Henry Dana, paying a farewell call to John Brown at North Elba on a morning in late June 1849, noted that at the breakfast table eating with the family were the hired hands, including three Negroes. Brown's attempt to spur Negroes on led him in 1848 to contribute a lengthy article to the Ram's Horn, a short-lived weekly. Entitled Sam Bow's Mistakes, this article lampoons the habits of the Negro. Brown felt that the colored people were not doing all that they themselves could do in self-improvement. Hence, in Sam Bow's Mistakes, he makes his point by posing as a Negro who is offering to his fellows the benefit of his experience in life. A typical passage reads as follows. Another error of my riper years has been that when any meeting of colored people has been called in order to consider any important matter of general interest, I have been so eager to display my spouting talents and so tenacious of some trifling theory or other that I have adopted that I have generally lost all sight of the business at hand, consumed the time disputing about things of no moment, and thereby defeated entirely many important measures calculated to promote the general welfare. But I am happy to say I can see in a minute where I missed it. Another small error of my life, for I never committed great blunders, has been that I never would, for the sake of union in the furtherance of the most vital interests of our race, yield any minor point of difference. In this way, I have always had to act with but a few, or more frequently alone, and could accomplish nothing worth living for. But I have one comfort. I can see in a minute where I missed it. If few men knew the Negro's shortcomings as perceptively as Brown, there were even fewer who were as distressed by color prejudice as he. One of his followers relates that while walking in Boston in April 1857, Brown was greatly annoyed at the rude language addressed to a colored girl, language of the type, Brown said, that would not have been directed to a white girl. Entering the Massasoit House in Chicago for breakfast on April 25, 1858, Brown was told that the Negro member of his party, Richard Richardson, a fugitive slave, could not be served. Brown marched out, although not before subjecting the proprietor to a little bit of terse logic. Aside from his equalitarian principles, Brown was interested in the welfare of the colored people because he had something for them to do. His all-consuming passion was the abolition of slavery, an end which he proposed to accomplish by enlisting a semi-militaristic group of followers ready for direct action. 
Brown's role for the Negro was implicit in an organization he formed in January 1851 at Springfield, Massachusetts, the United States League of Gileadites. Formed to resist the fugitive slave law, the Gileadites pledged themselves to go armed and to shoot to kill, a pattern of conduct that would characterize Brown's later operations in Kansas and at Harper's Ferry. The 44 colored men and women who signed the agreement apparently had little call for action. Moreover, in March 1851, Brown, the original man in motion, left for Ohio. Brown was interested in recruiting Negro leaders and the black rank and file. Prominent figures sought out by Brown included Frederick Douglass, Martin R. Delaney, Stephen Smith, Jermaine W. Loguen, Henry Highland Garnett, William Still, and Charles H. Langston. His contacts with Douglas, whom he desperately wished to win over, stretched over a longer time span and were more numerous than with any other Negro leader. Brown's acquaintance with Douglas went back to the spring of 1848, when the latter, at Brown's request, visited him at Springfield. In the spring of 1858, Brown paid two visits to the Douglas home in Rochester, New York, one of them extending over a period of two weeks. While a guest of Douglas, Brown met a fugitive slave, Shields Green, who would accompany him to Harper's Ferry. Shortly before Brown got ready to make his raid into Virginia, he arranged to meet Douglas at Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, some twenty miles from the site of the planned foray. Douglas brought a letter for Brown from Mrs. J. N. Gloucester, a Brooklyn woman of means, with twenty-five dollars enclosed. Douglas was accompanied by Shields Green, the two of them being led to Brown's hideout by Harry Watson, a Negro underground railroad operator at Chambersburg. For three days, Brown tried to persuade Douglas to join the expedition. Douglas steadfastly refused, discretion having formed his decision. Not a single other Negro leader would join Brown, all of them considering his venture imprudent. On May 17, 1859, Brown wrote to Loguen, I will just whisper in your private ear that I have no doubt you will soon have a call from God to minister at a different location. Despite the language, the Negro clergyman remained unconvinced. Loguen, like other Negroes, admired Brown for his anti-slavery exploits in Kansas and his daring excursion into Missouri in which he had freed eleven slaves by a show of force. However, as much as they revered Brown for his courage, Negro leaders thought that the proposed seizure of Harper's Ferry was inordinately risky, if not foolhardy. Brown's most ambitious attempt to enlist the Negro rank and file was the holding of a convention at Chatham, Ontario, in early May 1858. Brown's own party of twelve was present, as were thirty-four Negroes. These included the presiding officer, a Negro clergyman, William C. Monroe, the poet, James Madison Bell, and Martin R. Delaney, the last named then practicing medicine at Chatham, having come at the urgent personal invitation of Brown himself. The chief work of the convention was the adoption of a provisional constitution of the United States, a document which avowed the Declaration of Independence and condemned slavery. The Chatham Convention lacked follow-up. With Brown gone, and with no action of any kind forthcoming for nearly seventeen months, the enthusiasm of the Chatham signers abated, never to be rekindled. But at Chatham, Brown for the first time had met Harriet Tubman. He had thought of her as the shepherd of the slaves that he would shake loose. Brown's tete-a-tete with Harriet confirmed his already high opinion of her but neither she nor Delaney would be with him at Harper's Ferry. Brown, however, had not left Chatham empty-handed. A young printer's devil, Osborne Perry Anderson, had been impressed by the convention and by its convener. He would be the only black survivor of Harper's Ferry. By the autumn of 1859, Brown was ready to seize the government arsenal at Harper's Ferry, a prelude to establishing a stronghold in the mountains and thus liberating the slaves on a mounting scale of operations. 
Late in the night of October 16th, Brown moved into the town, leaving three of his party at the Kennedy Farm, the base of operations in Maryland. Marching into the darkened Harper's Ferry behind Brown were 18 followers, five of them Negroes, Osborne Perry Anderson, Shields Green, Dangerfield Newby, like Green, an escaped slave, and two recruits from Oberlin, Ohio, John A. Copeland, Jr., and Louis S. Leary, his uncle. Copeland, a former student in the preparatory department at Oberlin College and the most articulate of the five, had joined Brown to assist in giving that freedom to at least a few of my poor and enslaved brethren who have been most foully and unjustly deprived of their liberty. John Brown was hardly a battlefield tactician. Lacking a clear and definite plan of campaign, his raid was quickly suppressed. The first of the five fatalities inflicted by Brown's men was on a free Negro, Haywood Shepherd, baggage master of the train depot, a contretemps which seemed to set the stage for a military fiasco. Ten of Brown's band were killed, Newby first and Leary later. Copeland and Green were among the seven who were captured, and Anderson was among the five who escaped. Brown and his captured followers were imprisoned in Charleston. Brown was tried first, and on October 31st the jury returned with a verdict of guilty. Two days later the judge pronounced a sentence of death by hanging. During the thirty-day interval between the sentence and the execution, Brown bore himself with fortitude and serenity. Brown's inner peace was not shared by his countrymen, particularly those in the North. For his act, however rash and wrong-headed, had dramatized the issue of slavery, forcing neutrals to abandon their fence-sitting posture and giving to the abolitionists a martyr figure of unprecedented proportions. Charles H. Langston, like half a dozen white abolitionists, felt the necessity of issuing a card of denial stating that he had had no hand in the Harper's Ferry affair. But what shall I deny, added Langston? I cannot deny that I feel the very deepest sympathy with the immortal John Brown in his heroic and daring effort to free the slaves. Langston's sentiment of sympathy and esteem mirrored the reaction of the overwhelming majority of black Americans. During Brown's month in jail, innumerable prayer and sympathy meetings were held throughout the North. None were more fervent than those called by Negroes. The weekly Anglo-African for November 5th carried a guest editorial by James W.C. Pennington entitled, Pray for John Brown. Such advice was hardly needed. On the day after Brown was sentenced, a group of Providence Negroes meeting at the Zion Church expressed their full sympathy for Captain John Brown. Despite their abhorrence to bloodshed and civil war, they referred to Brown as hero, philanthropist, and unflinching champion of liberty, and pledged themselves to send up their prayers to Almighty God on his behalf. A group of Chicago Negroes, meeting later that month, drafted a letter to Brown assuring him of their deep sympathy and their intention to contribute material aid to his family. How could we be so ungrateful as to do less for one who has suffered, bled, and now ready to die for the cause? At the Siloam Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn, a prayer meeting cutting across denominational lines was led by the pastor, A. N. Freeman, assisted by fellow clergymen Henry Highland Garnett, James N. Gloucester, and Amos G. Beeman. Colored women sent letters of esteem to the jailed Brown. A group of Brooklyn matrons wrote that they would ever hold him in their remembrance, considering him a model of true patriotism because he sacrificed everything for his country's sake. From Kendallville, Indiana, Francis Ellen Watkins sent a letter on behalf of the slave women, an admixture of Christian faith in the future and symbolic references to the past. You have rocked the bloody Bastille, and the hemlock is distilled with victory when it is pressed to the lips of Socrates. A group of women from New York, Brooklyn, and Williamsburg sent Mrs. Brown a letter on November 23rd. Its content summarized in the lines, Fear not, beloved sister, 
trust in the God of Jacob. As John Brown stepped from the jail on the last morning of his life, no little slave child was held up for the benison of his lips, for none but soldiers were near, and the street was full of marching men. However, as Brown was led to the gallows, a slave woman said, God bless you, old man. If I could help you, I would. Brown went to his death with dignity, and the day concluded, wrote one who was present, with the calm and quiet of a New England Sabbath. If December 2, 1859, was also a quiet day in abolitionist circles, it was due to the nature of its observance. Throughout the North, reformers held prayer meetings or meetings with a religious orientation. At Boston, where all Negro businesses were closed, the colored people, wearing armbands of black crepe, held three prayer meetings, morning, afternoon, and night, at Leonard Grimes's Twelfth Baptist Church. Many persons stayed from one meeting to the next, not needing to go out for meals on a day of widespread fasting. One of these all-day sojourners was Lydia Maria Child, who had journeyed from Wayland, fifteen miles away, to spend the solemn day with Negroes. She therefore had to miss the much larger meeting at Tremont Temple, arranged by the white abolitionists, but with Negroes attending in large numbers, and with J. Sella Martin as one of the featured speakers. But perhaps it was just as well that Mrs. Child did not go to the crowded temple, for thousands were turned away. Martyr Day, as some black abolitionists called it, was appropriately observed by New York Negroes at a meeting at Shiloh Church beginning at ten in the morning and with a period of silent prayer at noon. Of the six clergymen on the program, William Goodell, the only white speaker, differed from two of his colleagues on one point. When James N. Gloucester endorsed John Brown's course, Goodell dissented on the grounds that the weapons of the abolitionists were moral and religious rather than carnal. Samson White took issue, informing Goodell that George Washington, whom Americans revered, had not taken the position that our weapons are not carnal when he led the new nation in its struggle against English oppression. Washington and the Americans of his day had acted on the premise that resistance to tyrants was obedience to God. White, somewhat carried away, said that he had an arm which he felt duty-bound to use when his God-given rights were invaded. Philadelphia Negroes, like those in Boston, observed Martyr Day by closing down their businesses. Public prayer meetings were held at two churches, Shiloh and Union Baptist. Hundreds of colored men and women went to National Hall to hear Robert Purvis and white William Furness. Pittsburgh's black community held a meeting addressed by native son George Vachon. At Detroit, the colored people gathered at the Second Baptist Church, where they passed a resolution vowing to venerate Brown's character, regarding him as our temporal leader whose name will never die. On Martyr Day at Cleveland, the 2,000 who managed to get into crowded Melodian Hall included almost as many whites as blacks, with almost as many equally mixed milling around outside, unable to get in. Judges and members of the state legislature were among the platform guests flanking the presiding officer, Charles H. Langston. The walls were draped in black, and the stage was hung with large-lettered framed quotations from John Brown's writings and conversations. Negroes in lesser towns throughout the North, from Worcester, Massachusetts to Galesburg, Ohio, likewise paused on December 2, 1859, to honor John Brown on the day of his death. Negroes felt that they had an especial obligation to assist in the efforts to give financial aid to John Brown's widow. Their donations would not be large, but they would represent a more widespread giving than their modest totals might indicate. The John Brown Relief Fund of New Haven raised $13 for Mary Brown. Philadelphia Negroes sent her $150, and the recently formed John Brown Liberty League of Detroit donated $25. Some Negroes, such as Francis Ellen Watkins, sent personal contributions. Mrs. Brown's letters of acknowledgment were brief, but gracious and inspirational. Some Negroes, such as Francis Ellen Watkins, sent personal contributions. Mrs. Brown's letters of acknowledgment were brief, but gracious and inspirational. The sympathy that Negroes felt for Mrs. Brown extended to Mrs. Mary Leary, widow of Louis S. Leary. 
the wife and seven children of the other Negro who fell at Harper's Ferry, Dangerfield Newby, were in slavery, and neither of the two Negroes who were hanged, John A. Copeland or Shields Green, was married. Boston Negroes raised $40 for Mrs. Leary and her child, and $10 to go toward erecting a monument to the memory of the heroes of Harper's Ferry. The colored women in Brooklyn and New York sent Mrs. Leary a total of $140, bringing from her the reply that her loss had been great, but she hoped that her husband and his associates had not died in vain in their attack on that great evil, American slavery. Negroes did not wait for history to pass the verdict on John Brown. He was the greatest man of the 19th century, ran a resolution adopted by a group of New Bedford Negroes two days after he mounted the scaffold. This evaluation was echoed by Frederick Douglass in a letter to Brown's associate, James Redpath, on June 29, 1860. Brown's portrait graced the wall of the Purvis dining room at Byberry, Pennsylvania. In Troy, New York, the black children pooled their pennies so that they might buy a picture of him for their school. A Negro Weekly compared him with Nat Turner, discovering that both were idealistic, Bible-nurtured, tenacious of purpose, swayed by spiritual impulses, and calm and heroic in prison. The evaluation of Brown by Negroes was uncritical, since he perhaps was worth more for hanging than anything else. But as prophets, Negroes did better. For with the ensuing rapid current of national events, Brown's fate became a rallying cry and his name a legend. It is true, wrote John A. Copeland, as he sat in the jail awaiting the hangman's noose, that the outbreak at Harper's Ferry did not give immediate freedom to the slave, but it was the prelude to that event. On the eve of the Civil War, the abolitionists lost John Brown, but they regained Charles Sumner. The Massachusetts senator had been the victim of a physical assault, which, like the John Brown raid, bespoke the mounting violence of the times. On May 22, 1856, as Sumner sat reading his mail in the nearly empty Senate chamber, a congressman from South Carolina, Preston S. Brooks, belabored him on the head with a heavy cane. Brooks had bitterly resented a verbal attack which Sumner had made two days earlier against his uncle, Senator Andrew Pickens Butler, in a Senate speech which at once became famous under the title, The Crime Against Kansas. Brooks Kane felled Sumner, bleeding and unconscious to the floor. Reformers throughout the North were shocked, Negroes throughout the North holding protest meetings. By mid-1860, Sumner now become by martyrdom a truly important figure, was ready once more to answer the roll call. On June 4th, after an absence of nearly 50 months from the Senate chamber, he arose to deliver a speech. He took the floor at ten minutes past twelve, and spoke until a little after four. Sumner's was the eloquence of industry, rather than the eloquence of inspiration, wrote one of his Negro admirers, Archibald H. Grimke. He requires space, and he requires time. Doubtless, on this occasion, Sumner felt that his subject, the barbarism of slavery, warranted extended treatment. The essence of the address, however, may be briefly stated. Slavery was a upas tree with all its gigantic poison. In the esteem of black Americans, Sumner already was second to none in national politics. For this maiden effort on his return to the Senate, Negro leaders showered him with a profusion of epistolary plaudits. From Robert Morris, who had worked with him in 1849 on the separate schools issue in Boston, came a letter of thanks in behalf of the colored young men of Boston. Another lawyer, John S. Rock, later to be admitted on motion of Sumner to the bar of the United States Supreme Court, sent word, Your immortal speech has sent a thrill of joy to all lovers of freedom everywhere. A colored citizen of New Bedford, who had, upon his own testimony, faithfully devoted more than twenty years of his brief life to the elevation of his race, assured the senator that the gratitude of the colored people was incalculable. However phrased, all of the letters expressed complete approval. Ebenezer D. Bassett, principal of the Institute for Colored Youth at Philadelphia, and later to become the first Negro to represent the United States at Port-au-Prince, Haiti, informed Sumner that the speech was unequaled by anything in the oratory of modern times. 
Bassett, as one with a reputation as a classical scholar, felt emboldened to place Sumner's effort side by side with the matchless D. Corona of Demosthenes. From Philadelphia also came word from William Still, You have effectually laid the axe at the root of the tree. At nearby Byberry, Robert Purvis had posted a note. Sumner's speech had stirred within him the deepest emotions. H. O. Wagoner, venturing to speak in the name or in the behalf of the seven or eight thousand colored people of the state of Illinois, return heartfelt thanks for the ever-memorable services which you have just rendered in the Senate of the United States to the cause of my enslaved and downtrodden fellow countrymen. Could the poor slave, continued Wagoner, know the substance of that speech and the circumstances under which it was given, in the very face of the slave power, I say could the slaves be made to comprehend fully all this, it would thrill their very souls with emotions of joy unspeakable. The right word has been uttered, intoned Frederick Douglass. You spoke to the Senate and the nation, but you have a nobler and a mightier audience. The civilized world will hear you and rejoice at the tremendous exposure of meanness, brutality, blood-guiltiness, hell-black iniquity, and barbarism of American slavery. Terming it the most anti-slavery speech ever made in the Senate Hall of the United States, Douglas Monthly carried it in full. Francis Ellen Watkins caught the mood, turning out some lines whose spirit may be sampled from the opening and closing stanzas. Thank God that thou hast spoken words earnest, true, and brave. The lightning of thy lips has smote the fetters of the slave. Thy words were not soft echoes, thy tones no siren song. They fell as battle-axes upon our giant wrong. Although fulsomely praised by Negroes, Sumner's speech drew bitter comments in the North, where the prevailing sentiment was far less hostile toward slavery than his. Less than five months after the address, however, Abraham Lincoln was elected to the presidency, and a rapprochement between the sections became all but impossible. Less than seven weeks after the Republican victory, South Carolina officially dissolved its union with the other states of North America. Seeking to convince the South that her institutions, particularly slavery, were not endangered, conciliators in both houses of Congress tried to find a pacifying formula. Their efforts provoked a heated public discussion, which in turn made for an increased hostility toward the colored man, who was held to be the source of all discord. The everlasting Negro is the rock upon which the ship of state must split, ran an angry, widely reprinted editorial in a Providence daily. Will the people stand for this much longer? Will they make the Negro their god? The possibility of a rapprochement between the North and the South dismayed the Negro. All compromises now are as new wine to old bottles, new cloth to old garments, editorialized Douglas Monthly. To attempt them as a means of peace between freedom and slavery is as to attempt to reverse irreversible law. Negro leaders were apprehensive lest the road to sectional reconciliation become the last resting ground for freedom. But such fears of a sellout solution by the North or any kind of peaceful settlement proved premature. Six weeks after Lincoln took office, Fort Sumter was fired upon. Compromise measures, like the Union itself, having proved unable to cope with slavery. Our national sin has found us out, ran an editorial in Douglas Monthly for May 1861. In this Old Testament sense, war had indeed come as sort of an atonement for a fall from grace, an act of redemption, no matter how untoward its expression. But in a sense less retributive and more peculiarly American, the Civil War was a phase of the continual striving for the goals for which this country had been conceived. The downfall of slavery would thus bring additional strength for the tasks ahead. Viewed in this light, the abolitionist crusade itself was but a continuing phase of the Revolution of 1776, an attempt to put into practice the doctrine of man's essential equality. We have good cause to be grateful to the slave for the benefit we have received to ourselves in working for him, wrote Abby Kelly. In striving to strike his chains off, we found most surely that we were manacled ourselves. Miss Kelly's sentiment bespoke a largeness of mind and of spirit. 
but written in 1838, it did not fully encompass the role of the black American in the abolitionist crusade. More than an unhappy pawn, he had known that he must work to forge his own freedom, and to this task he had brought special skills. The struggle to make man free was a grim business, but he was accustomed to grim businesses. The struggle to make men free might entail armed resistance, but he was crisis-oriented from birth. To the extent that America had a revolutionary tradition, he was its protagonist no less than its symbol. Okay, that's the end of the clip. Thank it's really, you, uh, really powerful, for, uh, it, it's really powerful, isn't it, Leslie? It sure is, and um, you are powerful, and your words are powerful, and your work. And, um, you know, I'm just so happy that you're able to join us tonight. And could you give the listeners your website one more time, the name of those three books? All right. Um, it's My website is www.alliesforfreedom.org. And... The, I take the name Allies for Freedom from Professor Quarles' book. That's the name of his book, Allies for Freedom, Blacks and John Brown. And so when a group of us wrote a book, I haven't talked about the 1999 book yet. Have I got in a minute to do that, Leslie? Have I? I don't know. Okay. Um the name. I'm here. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, see, because I only talked about two of the books. The third book is called John Brown Mysteries. And John Brown Mysteries was written in 1999, and it's by a group of public historians, people like me, teachers, librarians, local history people. And... Uh, and so we published this book, and I'm the one who paid for it, so I'm the one who, you know, who who gets to keep it. And uh, it's called uh, we called ourselves Allies for Freedom. So in the meantime, after that, I began to publish books and republish, like the one on Reverend Thomas Henry, in the name Allies for Freedom Publishers. So the website is called alliesforfreedom.org Okay. And are there any special events uh, uh, coming up on your schedule or any John Brown events? Well, uh, next week I'm meeting with people at the Episcopal Church in San Jose, the oldest church in Northern California, maybe all of California, who uh, appointed an African-American a deacon of their church, and they established a school, an African-American school. But this is California, so something else has got to happen here. It was established under the Freedmen's Program, but who else gets to go there are Indians and Asians. Mm. And so... Because in California, the discrimination against Asians becomes much worse than the discrimination and racism against African Americans. And so this church is uh, is getting this together about the school that they established, which was for African Americans. And I'm going to meet with them. We've got just all kinds of things that are... Uh, that are starting to happen, and uh, it just keeps going on. Wonderful. Uh, before you go, you mentioned much earlier in the interview, Mary Ellen Pleasant, I think was her name? Um, Mary Ellen Pleasant, yes. I like her awful lot. Would you just uh, go into depth a little bit about who she is and her role? Yes. She's... Uh, an African-American woman uh, living uh, in California at the time. And the person who has researched her is Dr. Sushil Bibbs, uh, who was of San Francisco then. She's now in Sacramento. 
And Mary Ellen Pleasant, who died, um, I don't know, 196 or something like that, the only thing she wanted on her gravestone is she was a friend of John Brown. So there are now four gravestones in California uh, mentioning the name John Brown. Three of them are of his family, of his son and two of his daughters and his widow, and now Mary Ellen Pleasant. So what she did... Yeah, Mm -hmm. so she was uh, associated with Brown, and she went to Canada, and she brought money from people in San Francisco. You know, it's a lot of of wealth going on here uh, at the time because of the gold rush. Mm -hmm. And she gave it to him, and she also was part of the plan. She was down in Roanoke, down on the Roanoke River in Virginia. And uh, Sushil Bibbs has proved that she was down there. Mm-hmm. As, so she was as, part of a, so it sounds like there was a whole different group of the Secret Six. We know the Secret Six are the white men who uh, financed John Brown's raid. But it sounds like there was an uh, entirely different group of people that helped him as well. You were a secret six of African Americans? Oh, Mm -hmm. yes. What a good idea. Hey, I'd I'd like to, uh, I'd like to make a list for you. Because we can do that. Yes. We can do that. You like that, huh? Yeah. Hey, that, that's, what a good idea, Leslie, because there's definitely a secret six and they give money to John Brown. And, uh, uh, yeah, hey, what what a great idea. Let, let's do that. Okay. All right, that's a great way to end the show. All right. And, um, you know, I always enjoy talking to you. That You've been on a few times. And um, we're going to have you on as a series. How about that? Sure. All right. Well, you have a safe trip, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you, Liz. All right. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.